And I found it so timely, he's examining what he saw as the collapse of American culture, which was so interesting, because is this not some of the similar sentiments that you see in, like, the, quote, post-Obama United States of America? Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be talking about True West, a show that I recently had the pleasure of Starring in uh, alongside an Australian actor named Ryan Bowne, co-starred by uh, Joe Bryant and Tom Harwood, directed by Georgina Symes, etc., etc. We'll talk more about that later. Um, It's a classic written by Sam Shepard. We're going to talk about some of the themes. It's a very rich family drama that also deals with some themes about America and the decline of the myth of the West, westward expansion, that kind of stuff as well. So there's lots of richness to unpack. Troy watched it uh, on the live stream, so uh, we kind of were like, shit, man, maybe we can uh, unpack it and squeeze it for all of its philosophical themes uh, as possible. Yeah, dude, is that kind of the idea? (laughs) Yeah, plus also it's got to be cathartic for you to just, you've been living in this world, as you said, um, for so long to just release all of the conceptual baggage that you've built up over the last few months. Yeah. That I've suppressed and repressed <laughs> by just exploring the creative uh, creative angles. So yeah, so that will be our main segment. Of course, we have our shitty uh, shitty minute and our sticky leaves segments as well. We do want to just send a little reminder that if you uh, enjoy the content that we're producing and you want to support us, you can at patreon.com slash owls at dawn where we have some bonus content. Troy and I are kind of trying to brainstorm a little bit about adding a couple of things um, to what we can offer patrons uh, moving forward, especially like starting in this year, but then also moving forward. So make sure you check that out, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. We've also got our merch stuff live. You can go to our website, owlsatdawn.com to check out our merch. I'm still rocking that fucking, my mug, my fuck Heidegger mug and then my fuck Heidegger tote bag everywhere that I go I actually took it with me on a I took it with me on a flight that was my only bag that I carried I didn't check a bag and I didn't have like a backpack I just carried my fucking fuck Heidegger tote bag with like extra clothes and toothbrush and deodorant and my argan oil of course and my iPad and it was all in there and I was my only thing and people were looking at me like that's all you brought I'm like yeah that's all I brought man that's all I need So, yeah, so that's what we'll get into this week. And we should also mention for patrons and maybe or patrons that may be wondering, we are going to be doing our patron sponsored episode very soon. And it will be on um, Walter Benjamin and Agamben uh, as the patrons decided. So look forward to that. soon. Cool. Sweet. Sounds good. Well, let's get this started, bro. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing we got to do is the shitty minute. And that's the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? Okay, so here's the deal. I was going to tell – I had a different shitty minute prepared. And then I was about to recap a story to Troy before we started recording. And I said, fuck it. You know what? I'm just going to make this my shitty minute because it is kind of a shitty thing. So here we go. Okay, so I did this run of this show. True West. And it's really all I've been doing for the last, you know, let's say month and a half especially. But really the last month, it's really all I've been doing. Um, 
kind of put the okay. academic we should, stuff. We should emphasize that, by the way. Like, you were turning down reading philosophy to focus yes, your mind yeah. on this, which is saying something for you. Yeah, exactly. And I was intentionally doing it, right, to make sure that I kind of didn't confuse myself so that I could really delve into the character and all that other stuff because it, it really is two different brains when you're, like, thinking conceptually and analytically than when you're kind of mm -hmm. just trying to to just free yourself in creativity. And you can't judge the character, especially if it's a character that you don't really enjoy. And we'll talk more about this. Um, not, not that I don't enjoy playing the character, but that is like a, a despicable kind of person or has despicable elements to them, right? Um, you can judge them, especially if you know people in your life that are like them. So I had to put all of that aside so that there was no judgment so that I could throw myself fully into kind of like trying to create my version of what this character would be. And so uh, I've kind of just completely set aside everything and I've, I've been in the art stuff. So I've been fully immersed in the show. And then on top of that, the show ends Sunday night and I had an audition for the arena tour of We Will Rock You, which is a musical based on Queen's music here. Uh, and it's going to be here um, in Australia at the end of the year is when it starts in like October or something like that. And so I had to fly up to Brisbane for the callback for that, right? So I fly up to Brisbane. And uh, my voice is fucked because I've been smoking cigarettes and drinking non-alcoholic beer and yelling for the duration of this run of this show. So my voice is all trashed. So on a good day, obviously, you need to have good vocal health. And then, of course, if you're singing fucking Freddie Mercury's music, you really need strong vocal <laughs> health in order to be able to sing it, right? So I'm, I'm worried. I'm telling my agents. I'm like, guys, I'm like, can we like – can we see if we can get an extension and I can send in a self-tape a week later? I need my voice to heal. And they're like, we're sorry, we can't. Like it has – the ninth uh, uh, is the last day for, for in-person auditions or is the day of in-person auditions for this callback. You could do a self-tape before that, which would have been the fifth. But that was during my run and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to you know, do a show at night and then the next day wake up and have enough vocal health to be able to, to, to hit these notes. So I'm like, fuck, I'll just go in person. So I fly up to Brisbane. I'm on vocal rest for like a day and a half. So the show ends Sunday. I pretty much don't say a word from after the show ends Sunday night to uh, all day Monday. Um, I'm just like typing stuff on my phones and like ordering chamomile teas with honey, please, <laughs> and stuff like that, like holding up my phone to people. Um, so I'm on full vocal rest trying to let myself heal up. I'm doing all the stuff that you do, the steam, the honeys, the ginger, all the stuff that you got to do to take care of your uh, – to take care of your voice when you're trying to heal it, right? Doing all this stuff. I wake up Tuesday morning. Uh, I go and I'm, I'm up really early to try to make sure I clear myself all out. And I'm like, I'm ready. I'm going to fucking, I'm going to, I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm going to go in there. My voice wasn't a hundred percent. It was probably 80%, but I was like, fuck it. I'm going to just push through. Um, and it's a rock musical. So if it's a little raspy at the top end of my range, that's fine. You know, <laughs> and I'm going to tell them that my voice is fucked. We'll make it work. So I go in there, uh, Somehow, dude, somehow, I don't know if it was my adrenaline, I don't know what it was, somehow my voice held up in the audition and they were like, thank you so much. They're like, can you come back uh, at one o'clock and we want to do a little bit more singing and we want to see uh, some movement stuff. Now, for those of you who are not versed in the language of musical theater, there's a difference between movement and dance, okay? Dance well, is like, Bob like sex or something. What's that? I thought it meant like sex stuff or something. No, not sex stuff. Yeah, unfortunately. What's the euphemism for that? Uh, like, what, what do they say when they want you to go on the couch? Uh, they say, what are you doing later? I'd love to talk to you further <laughs> about this project. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're like, we want to see how you move. Now, movement is different from dance, right? Movement is 
movement, right? It can include some elements of dance, but it's not going to be full-on jazz, tap, ballet, contemporary, any of that stuff, right? Whereas if mm. they say dance, you know, that's when Austin doesn't go because Austin is not a dancer, <laughs> right? Now, I obviously was being called back for non-dancing roles, right? Um, but nevertheless, they still want to see how you move, right? So I'm like, yeah, sure, of course I'll come back and I'll do some more singing and uh, and and uh, I'll, I'll see how well I can move. So I come back, I do more singing stuff. The singing, again, holds up, it's fine. So then it's time for the dancing, right? Now I'm, I'm looking around me at this point at the dance portion and I'm looking around and everyone's got numbers and stuff like that and uh, I'm talking to people. I'm like, have you seen this show before? I'm like, how much dancing is in the show? They're like, oh, nothing. It's not that much at all. And they're all super cavalier about this and they're all like in their like proper like dance outfits and shit like that. And I'm in my <laughs> torn cut off jeans, a tank top <laughs> and the shoes that I wore uh, earlier today, which are kind of like just like flat, kind of like not skate shoes, but kind of like skate shoes looking things, right? And so I'm like, okay, fine. Um, they know I'm not a dancer. The producers know I'm not a dancer. I, I, I My initial audition was for non-dancing role. The callback auditions have been for non-dancing roles. So clearly they know I'm not a dancer. They're not going to stick me in a dance thing, right? So I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm, I'm with this big group of people. We go in and the choreographer is like, hey, everybody, thank you so much. Okay, here's what we're going to do. He's like, he's like, obviously this is a rock show, right? This is We Will Rock You. This isn't like Fosse in Chicago or something like that. He's like, so this isn't a dance-heavy show. He's like, the movements are super simple. He's like, so don't worry about it at all. He's like, all right. He's like, I'm just going to take you through the basic steps right now. And I'm sitting there. And I'm like, oh, thank you so much. I'm like, that's so much easier. <laughs> He's like, okay, it's like this. And then all of a sudden, bro, I'm not kidding you. It's like a scene out of a sitcom where like imagine Zach, Galif- Zach Galifianakis or like Jason Alexander is like brought into an advanced dance class. And all of a sudden the teacher goes, five, six, seven, eight, boom, dun, dun, dun. Okay, you got that? Now you go, go. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what the fuck did he just do? I'm like, what? And all of a sudden everybody everybody else is picking up on it and the movements and I'm like, oh shit. And he goes, okay, that's the first thing. And then he goes again. So it's gonna be five, six, seven, eight. Uh, and then he goes on to the next step. And it's like it he takes us through this whole dance routine in portions and we're supposed to just kind of like mirror it back now i've taken a little bit of jazz and tap because i did study musical theater a little bit in school but this is first of all like 15 years ago and second of all i only did it for like a semester and i've never been uh, a dancer in that sense that's not my thing and every musical that i've ever been in i've never had to do extensive dancing and if there was ever a dance routine like when i was in college doing musical stuff it was something that they you know they took a little time with you right but this is now a fucking professional production so they don't take that time with you if you've got two left feet right they just fucking throw you into the fray so here i am clearly the worst dancer in the whole (laughs) lot trying to keep up with these fucking movements and to be honest the movements are not that difficult like if i had a, a just even even 20 minutes to like actually like be like okay it's that into this into that into this i could get it down i wouldn't look fantastic but i'd be able to to get my way through the movements and again because it's a rock show they even said after they we did it for like 45 minutes we we did this routine over and over and over again and then they kept trying to get people out of trying to be so dancey and be like remember these are like uh we want this to be like super rock and we want you to be free and how it is because it's about the rebellion of the bohemians and whatever else the fuck relates to the story of the show go see the show if you don't know it but whatever um 
And so I was able to be convicted and committed in that shit, and that was fine. But when it came to actually stringing the routine together, bro, oh my god, it was fucking embarrassing. It was fucking <laughs> embarrassing. So at one point, I started being like, you know what, fuck it, I'm just gonna commit myself to the the rock side of things. So I started leaning into that shit, and I was like, fuck it. And then I even was mouthing to the producers who were watching this whole thing, and I'm like, I told you I'm not a dancer. I'm not a dancer. And they were like laughing and like shrugging their shoulders, and they're like, just go, <laughs> just go. And I'm like, fuck it. And then at one point. Then, okay, so then at this point, there's like, what, maybe eight dudes and like 40 women or something like that, right? So they're like, okay, let's just have the men up. And I'm like, no, no, because <laughs> there's like eight of us and everyone is going to be watching. And I literally, so then they're like, okay, let's see what numbers, like, who do we want in what position? And they had one guy, they're like, well, we think he has, the, he probably has the choreography down the best, so we'll have him stand in the center. And I just was like, I'm going to just make a joke. I was like, are you sure you don't want me in the center? Because clearly I have the choreography down better than everybody else. And everyone just started like laughing and stuff like that. It was like known that I should not have been in that dancing. Um, I was like, I don't even know why I'm in this, uh, why I'm in this portion of the audition here. Like clearly I'm not going to be out for one of the dancing roles. So just stick me back in the other room and just listen to me sing and give me some sides so I can act or something like that. Bro, it was so fucking embarrassing. I kid you not. It was like, it was like, I, I really wish it was filmed because it was like something out of a sitcom, you know, where it is like seriously where the guy's like, oh yeah, I have some dance experience or they're like, oh, well, you should come join our dance class. And he's like, oh, that would be great. And he goes to the dance class and it's like professional ballerinas or professional, professional jazz dancers. And they just all of a sudden start going and you're just there just trying to keep up like a freaking idiot. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> I, it was awful, dude. Fucking awful. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the only experience I can think of that would be similar to that is like if you, um, I think once before, like you sign up for a, an adult basketball league and you think for whatever reason, maybe because the, the website or the Facebook group or whatever is kind of shoddy, that it's just a bunch of regular dudes and you show up and it's a bunch <laughs> of like D1, uh, former D1 college players and shit, and they're all 6'5 and 220 and, and sculpted. Yes. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. And they I guess just start fucking running. <laughs> That's a hundred percent what it's like, dude. Uh, and, and in one sense, it's extremely humbling because you're like, damn, these fucking proper musical theater actors are fantastic at uh, dancing and singing and acting. And so it really does. It, it is a dose of humility, which is great. You can't just walk into uh, one of these auditions and just be like, yeah, I'm gonna do a dancing show. But I knew that, like. I was I shouldn't have been there in the first place, you know, but they wanted to see everything. They wanted to see if you could dance just in case because I auditioned for the lead and then one of the kind of like main supporting roles. And so it's like if I don't fit for one of those, I guess they want to see if they can stick you in somewhere else. But fuck, man. Oh, it was even I'm like cringe. I'm like I'm like moving my body around right now because I'm like it was so cringy. <laughs> but I ended up just leaning into it and had fun. And like I said, I was talking to the producers um during and i was like fuck it you know like they know they clearly know but this is this is what it is so fuck man fuck me hey handling that situation well made actually make you stick in their mind a little bit more who's to say right well yeah and i was talking with my agents afterwards and they were like well look like you obviously you weren't even being considered for a dance role they just wanted to see how well you could move in general and they're like if anything else they're like at least you met them they sent you through to two callbacks you met the producers you know them now and if it's not for this show they know you in the future and i did hear them after i did my first callback uh which was a, a singing callback i had to sing um i want to break free the queen song 
And uh, as soon as I finished, I walked out. I overheard one of the producers. She whispered to them. She was like, I really like his presence. So I was like, okay. So, yeah, I, uh, I at least I, I know that they, um, they liked me to some degree. So regardless of what ends up happening, um, that's a positive. But fuck, man. Ugh. It literally felt like a scene out of some, like, goofy slapstick comedy. Like some movie or something <laughs> like that. It was so funny. It was so funny. So... Well, that's exciting. We we rarely hear stories of uh, um, embarrassment and and semi failure from you, so I'm sure that, that goes <laughs> over well for our audience as well as it did for the producers of We Will Rock You. <laughs> oh Jesus, man! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you know when I'm a part of the uh, dancing ensemble of the arena tour of We Will Rock You, and I'll be the guy that just like runs around on stage and headbangs. That's what they're gonna cast me as. Yeah, well, yeah, why can't they do this? But it's like um, I don't know, Iron Maiden or something. I could be a background yeah, I, headbanger. I would do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the hair for it, man. I don't. You know. Yeah, my, uh, my I freaking, mean, my what percentage of actors work? out there are able to headbang without hurting themselves? That's a very that's a skill, man. That's a skill, that's man. A skill. Marketable fucking skill. Yeah. Well, when they do the Pantera musical, I'll let you know. I can't imagine Pantera being good content for a musical. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, kind of like, maybe, that's, that's pretty monotone. There's only like one mood <laughs> for Pantera. What about Metallica? You could do a Metallica musical. Yeah, you probably could. Um, but again, you still only have like mid-tempo thrash versus you know double-time thrash. <laughs> Unless you're mm. including 90s Metallica, which you just don't do that. Mm, interesting. Yeah. No, I do so, think yeah, Iron Maiden would be the one, though. I'm going to put that out there. Iron Maiden. Well, you would have to find, like, there's probably two humans on planet Earth that would be able to sing Iron Maiden. And Sebastian Bach is too old, so uh, I don't know how you would do that. <laughs> I could see you as Bruce Dickinson, man. Oh, I don't know if I could sing it, man. <laughs> too high. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> All right. That's my shitty minute. I made a fool of myself. Big dose of humble pie, <laughs> but it was great. All right, so we should move on to the main segment here. Let's do it, man. So we're talking in the main segment about the uh, connected to your shitty minute, right? Um, the play you just finished, um, True West, which uh, played in Australia for about a week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we mentioned that you've been caught up in this for you know months now, um, dedicating all of your mental space to. Uh, preparing for um, this role and a role that you know you mentioned to me and I think you've mentioned on the podcast before um, is pretty alien to like your natural character I mean would you say mm. it's the most alien to your natural character of any role you've played 100% I even had um, my friend Keir Keir Seward uh, I don't know has he been on this podcast I can't remember but uh, he's a director friend of mine that I've worked with a lot and he's based in London and he watched the one of the live streams and he was basically like, dude, he's like, I was I was kind of blown away because I've never seen you play that kind of character before. And he was like, it was really fascinating watching you branch out because usually, you know, when you're younger, especially in your 20s, it's like the romantic leads or like the cool guy or like the jock guy or like the laid back guy. And those things are kind of all in my back pocket because that's kind of what I've always been cast in, right? So this well, was just how you carry definitely... yourself too, right? Yeah, it's just... Yeah, and so this was definitely the biggest stretch for me as uh, as an actor, and I knew it would be. You know, I knew it would be because um, it is definitely the 
um, the the richest um, and and maybe most foreign um, character that I've ever had. Definitely most foreign character I've ever explored before. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I can imagine. You know, we we mentioned uh, earlier in the show that uh, there's some conceptual baggage that you had to repress mm. in um, working on uh, developing this role. And so this would be a good opportunity. And we talked about this, but, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, even for you to sort of unleash some of that conceptual baggage and really start thinking analytically and conceptually about what this role means um, mm. and the significance of it and what it, you think maybe it, it, how it affected you and changed you in certain ways upon reflection. And you've been repressing mm. that because you needed to devote yourself to the role and not judging, not making judgments, you know, positive or negative or even neutral about the character and just kind of inhabiting yeah. it. So yeah. um, we don't have a specific plan here, but I thought we could you know, begin by just discussing now that you've been able to live inside of this um, character's head for months and months, what are some of the things that now you've had a couple of days um, to reflect on it? What have you what have you thought about it? Yeah, I mean, I guess before this, too, I do want to just quick, quickly give one one final plug. So people can still watch the archived video. Mm. So uh, we did a we did a live stream of two shows and the company has actually since um, taken um, one of the shows, which was the Saturday night show. And they've done a high quality version of the video because, you know, sometimes they're switching live while they're watching it. And so they miss certain things a little bit. So what Mm -hmm. they've done is they've actually pieced together a sort of more complete version of the video. And so people can watch that. And it's the high quality, you know, uh, high definition version of it. So people can access that if you go to truewestsydney.com. It'll only be live until the 16th of February. And then it'll be taken down and people won't be able to purchase it after that. But uh, if you go to truewestsydney.com, there'll be a link down in the show notes. Then you can uh, access that. So you can check that out. And if I can just give one more plug before we get into the show, just because I got to at least indulge in um, some of the love that we were getting from it. We got um, some pretty stellar reviews um, from Broadway World and then like the Sydney Morning Herald. But uh, just so that people are like, oh, okay, this isn't just some amateur theater, but this was actually a really proper production. But um, so Broadway World, which is one of the bigger publications for reviewing theater, they came and they said, Ryan Bowne and Austin Hayden deliver naturalistic performances that are astounding in their commitment to the level of physicality as the tensions rise. A powerful piece of theater that is presented with alarming honesty. And then Sydney Morning Herald, uh, the reviewer's name is John Shand, and he's a pretty tough reviewer. And so I was really uh, happy with what he said. He said, Ryan Bowne and Austin Hayden give powerful performances in True West. Hayden's ferocious performance won't be quickly forgotten. So um, that was really um, lovely to get some of that. It was, uh, I, I guess I will say this, the one thing more than anything upon reflection, my, my initial thing is when you do a piece of art or when you do a project, when you write a book, this happened when I wrote my book um, on Sartre, right? Um, there's always... There's always that sense that you could have done more, that you could have done better. You could have invested more time. You could have explored more. You could have put more of yourself into it. You could have tried harder, you know, that sort of thing. At least I I tend to always have that. Um, I can honestly say that I don't feel that with this project <laughs> at all. Um, not that there isn't room for growth. I mean, I was even teasing about it on my Insta I was saying I'm sure the director and our assistant director still have notes for us, you know, from even our last performance that we did on Closing Night Sunday, which, you know, got a standing ovation. And um, 
and and you you can think like oh that's great you're getting attention and praise and things like that but there's still of course room for growth and I'm aware of that and I know that there are areas where I can go deeper where I can connect more um, but for some reason this show this team this project this script this story the way it all came together now I just feel accomplished I feel like we set out to do something um, and we did it to the best of our ability here on this day the Tuesday show was the best we could have done on Tuesday. The Wednesday show was the best we could have done for that moment in Wednesday. It's the same with the Thursday, Friday, the two Saturday shows, whatever, Sunday. And so I feel I feel just very fulfilled with everything. Um, I love the team. I love where it went. And, and we still want to do a longer season at some point. That's kind of the idea. But it just feels fucking so satisfying. And it's the first time that I've ever felt that with a project, that there wasn't an immediate mm. sense of longing but that I kind of am like, okay, it's there. And I actually, in a way, I don't miss it even because of that. I just am kind of like, I'm going to let it sit and let it be. And I still look forward. I, I want to do a longer season, but there isn't a sense of like, there isn't like a negative sentiment that's attached to it, if that makes any sense, which is a really kind of interesting experience that I've never had before. Yeah. I'd imagine that there's at least two features that might contribute to that feeling, right? One would be the physical nature of the whole thing is exhausting physically and mentally, right? It's exhausting. So that may help hmm. you feel the sort of physical after effects of completion. Like, okay, this was a thing that was done. Like I, I couldn't have given more physically. And so that sort of reinforces hmm. that mentally you couldn't have given more. Um, and then also, uh, can you really, um, uh, or what was I going to say? Oh, one thing I did want to say was, uh, could you really survive a, a longer season of this show? Like, could your set survive a longer season of this show? <laughs> yeah. So for people who are listening, spoilers, by the way, if you're going to watch the live stream and you don't want spoilers, uh, maybe pause now and go check it out. If you don't mind the spoilers, that's fine. Um, we demolish the fucking set. And it's basically yeah, these two brothers, <laughs> yeah, that get fucked up together and they end up just destroying their mother's house. And so we totally demolish the set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the set would last. I mean, you just have to replace things, right? Like you just have to purchase new telephones and things like that. And you repaint things and you rebuild things. I mean, we had to do that anyway, even with the short run. Um, the biggest thing I think that would be the toughest thing is physically our bodies. Like we're bruised up. You know, we go yeah. pretty fucking hard in this show. Uh, one of the reviewers even said that, that, you know, the the show kind of leaves you worried about the integrity of the set and the well-being of the actors on stage. And Ryan and I are, uh, my co-star, we're such good friends and we're so comfortable with each other that um, there was one show where actually our, our production manager pulled us aside and was like, okay, we have to we have to make sure we don't lose control, right? Like everything's choreographed, right? But mm. there's obviously a lot of stuff that's still in the moment improvised so the big movements are choreographed but a lot of stuff simple things little things happen and if you lose that control then you can like put yourself in danger so the long run would definitely test that um i don't think i i would want to do more than three weeks to a month um that would be the longest i would want to do uh, maybe even just two more weeks um of it so have a three-week total season but i'm not really sure i'd have to see. We have to talk to the rest of the team. But yeah, man, it would be brutal. But yeah, you know, you just repair the set and you fix it. And the stuff that can't be fixed, you don't break. It's <laughs> also it's also put a lot of bread, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of bread. So okay, so we'll give we'll give a little little synopsis, a little breakdown of the show. 
so it stars two brothers, Lee and Austin. Interestingly enough, I don't play Austin. I played Lee. Um, my friend Ryan Bown, the actor, uh, he plays the character of Austin. And um, Austin is an Ivy League educated writer, screenwriter. And he is working on like what is his last chance to, to kind of um, produce his masterpiece, let's say. He's been working on this project for ages. And he's been talking with the producer Saul, who's another character who was played by Tom Harwood. He's an English actor but living here in Aussie but doing an American accent. Um, and so, uh, Saul has been talking with Austin for a few months now about this project that Austin's working on and loves it and is ready to kind of take it to market, to, to sell it. And, and so Austin is on the threshold of that kind of like that, that grand success that he needs. Um, he's obviously sold other projects and things like that in the past because he's uh, making a career as a writer, but this is the big one, right? Lee shows up and Lee is the troublemaker brother. He's the older brother, and he's the troublemaker brother, and he's been kind of living out in the desert, and uh, he's a criminal, a petty criminal. He engages in theft. Um, he's also involved in dogfighting. Um, I don't even know if you would call it petty criminal because he talks about some, some big stuff like stealing diesels and dismantling for thousands of dollars a week. So, um, you know, pretty decent-sized um, crimes Lee's involved with. And he comes, and he... Uh, comes into their mother's home where Austin is holed up finishing his screenplay in the suburbs of Los Angeles, in Pasadena, let's say, which is where actually Sam Shepard wrote the play um, in his mother's house in Pasadena. It's a very autobiographical story. We can talk yeah, about sh- that a little Shout bit out more. to northeastern Los Angeles County, where I grew up. Hell yeah. Um, so Lee shows up in the mother's house where Austin is holed up trying to finish this screen screenplay and Lee doesn't know that Austin's going to be there and then what you basically have is just these clash of worlds as uh, Lee is there the destructive kind of force who brings the desert with him Austin is the representative of suburbs success the Hollywood industry stuff like that and um, the two of them are forced to deal with each other and as the days move by it really only takes place over a course of about three three days um, which is actually significant because there's some religious themes here. Troy, I don't know if you picked up on any of those religious themes, but there are. Uh, it takes place over three days, and um, what ends up happening is that Austin, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that Lee ends up kind of swindling the producer and convincing the producer that he has this story that's true to life, that's a real western. Um, and that it's uh, a better story than Austin's. And so the producer abandons Austin's project and ends up investing in Lee's project, takes it to some studios. The studios love the story because it's super authentic and there's something about the story that seems real rather than what the fakeness of Hollywood is used to producing. So they end up getting into a bidding war over Lee's story. Austin starts freaking out that Lee has come in and basically stolen this project. He becomes disillusioned with the producer Saul, uh, and then totally just starts to throw himself down the uh, route of like booze and alcohol, starts getting all fucked up. Then Lee starts to want to write uh, the actual screenplay for this story that he's that he's trying to pitch to the producer and to the studios, and there's kind of a reversal of roles. Now uh, Lee tries to kind of embody, if you will, the role of the writer, and Austin um, it starts to get really fucked up and um, starts going down the, the route of booze, and then also decides that he's going to go out in the town and steal some toasters. Because he thinks that uh, if Lee can steal stuff, why can't I? So he goes out and does it, and then basically 
chaos ensues and they start burning that like not literally burning the house down but just destroying the house lee becomes pissed off because he can't write the story because he's not a writer he's not a very intelligent educated person he fucks up the typewriter starts smashing the typewriter um uh it takes place in the 80s by the way i forgot to mention that um austin steals a shitload of toasters they're fucking drinking shitloads of beer there's coyotes all over the place there's crickets that are driving them all crazy this house then becomes a sort of like um, holding tank for these two people that kind of blur and they start off totally separate from each other and then they sort of merge into one figure um, as the as the play moves on um, and the culmination of the play is that um, Lee then finally convinces Austin that uh, that Austin can needs to write the screenplay for Lee um, but he's got to basically follow every move that Lee says right it's uh, all the kind of like dumb silly elements that Austin's educated brain might want to critique you know he's got to just fucking do it right so lee's dictating the story um and uh, as they're in the midst of kind of like celebrating them writing this story uh, in this trashed absolutely trashed house uh their mother comes home she comes back from alaska and she walks in on this chaotic scene and then what ends up happening is she starts exploring the home and she's like oh my god what happened in here and uh, Austin's like, oh, you know what? Lee's going to take me out to the desert with him. And she's like, but you can't leave. you got a family and everything. And Austin's like, fuck that. I'm done. I'm out of here. There's nothing in this town for me anymore. And then Lee is like, actually, you know what? I'm not going to take you with me to the desert. So then Austin and Lee end up getting in a huge fight. And it culminates in um, Austin trying to subdue Lee by, by strangling him with a telephone cord. And he ends up taking it too far. And as I said, spoilers, um, he ends up choking Lee out maybe killing him. The ending is kind of ambiguous. We can talk about that. And that's the end of the play. So that's pretty much the kind of basic synopsis of things, but there's a lot of shit that's going on in there. So, yeah. Yeah, so I have so many questions. Do you think we should start with the more conceptual stuff or stuff related to um, theater? Uh, Well, go ahead. Let's start with the practical theater stuff. Yeah, so one thing I noticed, um, and this may just be say more about about me than anything else, but the the fight scenes, right? So it's obviously an yeah. extremely physical, violent um, yeah. play, right? And that's yeah. a huge theme um, in the sibling rivalry thing going on uh, between Austin and Lee. Um, to me, it's it's, and this may just be part of like viewing it through live stream and not being like there in the moment. Um, but the fighting often seems to pop off, uh, in some cases, like without much leading up to it in a way that seemed different, mm. different than you see fight scenes in movies where mm. you kind of, if it's a drama, right? Not like an action movie or something, but in a drama, you really have to build up the tension to the point where it explodes. Right. Um, sort of like, you know, um, like some sort of like steam engine or something. Right. Um, but it seemed like tensions would be rising and you kind of feel that and then like violence would just like happen and it was shocking mm. and you're kind of like you, you don't even know what happened it happened so fast and i was mm. wondering if, if you thought that was more about just viewing it on the live stream and not being there in the moment to feel um to feel what it was like in the room or if that's an intentional thing i think it's both actually yeah i so i watched the the, the live stream version that's available for people now like the kind of like high quality one and um yeah you do miss some of the kind of immersive aspect of it just because live theater is live theater and that's what's so magical about live Mm -hmm. theater right there's something palpable in the air right 
With that said, I think it's also intentional because it's written in the script that way that all of a sudden Lee just bursts out with some sort of like crazy violence, right? And I think part of this is because Sam Shepard was highly influenced by Samuel Beckett. And um, there's an element of absurdity in all of Shepard's writings. And so I think, yeah, I think that there's something about this play both is grounded and real in its realism, but at the same time, it's meant to be surreal and hyper-real at the same time. And so I think when those those bursts of violence come, I think that's kind of, um, it, like I said, it is written in the script, but I think that's kind of the uh, the heightened hyper-realism that, that Shepard is kind of really leaning into about this character. And our director, Georgina Symes is her name, uh, she really wanted to kind of lean into that from the get-go. So in scene one, there's a, a moment where Austin offers Lee a little bit of money to take care of him, and Lee just bursts out and immediately kind of attacks him and then just goes away and then drinks his beer and then just makes a, a remark about the crickets afterwards, right? And you're like, what the fuck? Like, it's as if nothing so happened, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the, the way that we justified it to ourselves in trying to understand who Lee was is that Lee is an alcoholic. He's constantly drinking, always inebriated. And the idea is, is that it's like that, um, that, that alcoholic that just bursts out with violence all of the sudden. And um, the the character the, uh, one of the characterizations that we used to try to understand Lee was like a coyote, right? I mean, coyotes are a big theme throughout the story, but it's sort of like he's instinctual, right? There's not a lot of reflection. There's not a lot of um, um, there's not a lot of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He doesn't stew over things. He just kind of does. He just acts, right? He sees something. Not a lot he picks of up a scent. Of intentions. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think we really wanted to lean into to that aspect of the character of Lee. Um, so I think that's kind of why it kind of comes out of nowhere. But it is written in the text, you know, and it is absurd. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, he just pushed this guy. He just pushed his brother and was pretty violent about it, you know. And then all of a sudden he's like the fucking crickets. And you're like, OK, wait a second here. This is weird. Right? Like there's there's something weird going on and the weirdness is intentionally there in all of Shepard's stuff. It's supposed to be really kind of awkward and uncomfortable. Um, and it was weird, not weird, but interesting. I had a couple of people come up to me afterwards or friends of friends report back to me that like people got really triggered from this show because they either had an abusive alcoholic ex-partner and they said, oh my God, Lee is exactly like my ex-boyfriend or um, like my father was like that. You know, just fucking would burst out in one second and in the next second would be like, oh, remember that time that we went to the da 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 And you'd be like, what the <laughs> fuck? So those mood swings um, are characteristic. And a lot of people really did get that, that the sense of the realism even within the midst of the hyper-realism. Which I think just points to the fact that um, there's a, a mismatch in the way that we probably culturally conceive of violence and the way it actually is. So you can have a, a realistic take that appears surreal, right? We mm. probably tend to think that violence is like an intentional like act where you decide the only way to make your point or to get your point across or to achieve um, success in communication or whatever is to engage in some violent act. And that's just typically not how violence in these kind of contexts um, manifests itself, right? It, it is mm-hmm. an instinctual sort of almost animalistic reaction. And so it makes sense for the subject to engage in that violent behavior as a response and then immediately move on to the next thing as if it didn't happen since it wasn't really a, um, you know, reflected upon uh, 
intention forming act. Yeah, and the thing that's so interesting is is I mean, I'm so familiar with the play now and and I love it, but part of me wishes that I could see it for the first time because I never mm-hmm. saw it. I've still never seen it. I mean, I've seen the live stream of what we did, but I've never seen it. And one of the things I miss out on is is I miss out on that first fresh reading. Like I read the play obviously, and the first time I read it, I was like, "Oh my god, what the fuck? Where is this going?" you know? But I that opening scene because there's that little burst of violence then that means in scene two when there's the digs the brotherly digs that uh that are being engaged in all of that is in the shadow of that outburst of violence right which means then when scene three comes which is the scene when Saul the producer actually comes in and Lee is kind of inserting himself into the conversation to try to hustle Saul or to get Saul's attention and he makes kind of underhanded remarks or again digs at Austin all of that again is in the shadow of that violence right Mm -hmm. so um and even any sort of move towards Austin like a little punch on the shoulder like there's this bit where they're talking about playing golf and Lee walks over and says well Austin could be our caddy and I kind of like punch him on the shoulder or whatever you're kind of like oh that's a playful punch but you just clearly showed earlier that there's more violence in the tank you know and so all of that I think is there and it does stew and it does stew and it does stew Um, But the interesting thing is the end of scene eight, there's nine scenes. The end of scene eight is the most um, outraged that Lee actually gets. Um, uh, And he doesn't end up actually really fully going all the way and seriously hurting Austin. And then the irony is, is that in scene nine, Austin is the one who actually fully goes the extra step. And in a way, maybe he loses himself right? He's sort of, by him giving himself over to the activities and the tendencies of Lee and of their alcoholic, abusive asshole father, um, he then has lost himself. He's suppressed that part of him that was always, quote, there. It's kind of like that Shane, you know, the movie Shane, where it's like a man can't deny who he is that's repeated in Logan, like you are what you are and you can't run from it sort of thing. And it's like the fate of who you are because of your family traumas. You you can try your best. You can go to the Ivy League schools. You can educate yourself. You can try to build the suburban life, but you are who you are, and it's going to catch up with you eventually. And that's what ends up happening. He ends up losing himself um, by kind of doing the ultimate despicable act by killing his brother. Um, that's a dominant so I think theme in the revisionist westerns, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the violence is um, – it's – it's there, it's interesting, it's absurd, it's hyper-real, and then it kind of, it turns and it twists, and it takes you in one direction, and you think maybe that it's going to go one way, and then it all of a sudden switches. All right, so tell me about these religious themes. You mentioned that there was a, a three-day structure, so I'm guessing that yeah. there's, a, there's a, uh, another, another guy who had an important three days in religious history. <laughs> so what's the connection there, other than the three days? Well, so it's just, I don't think it's, so neatly woven together but um you know sam shepherd was raised in the united states uh i don't remember somebody in his family was a minister i can't remember i can't remember who it was but not like his father his father was in the military but um i mean his his, his last name's shepherd so somebody <laughs> somebody yeah, got clearly that, that surname from yeah. their uh functioning their <laughs> town yeah um and so he was raised obviously with with that and and he was um yeah, so but so so the way that it's handled is there's just these subtle references throughout that the more you start to really pay attention to them, the more they start to kind of shine, I think. And um, there's this 
particularly towards the end of the film, um, there's this bit where uh, Austin has totally gone off the rails and he's like, fuck it, I'm leaving, I'm done. He's stolen all these toasters, he's engaged in crime, he's a criminal now, but it's it's all told through like this really absurd kind of funny scene where he's got all these fucking toasters lined up and he's making toast <laughs> and he's saying, Lee, let's have some toast and Lee's like, fuck you, I don't want any toast. He's like, I just want a woman at, the, at this moment because I'm fucked up and I'm just horny, you know, sort of thing. And uh, all of a sudden Austin starts going off on this little monologue about how amazing toast is and how he loves the smell of toast and, and how for him it like symbolizes like uh, new beginnings and hope and and stuff like that. And Lee says, so go to church, why don't you? And um, there's this bit where where Lee basically says, you know, what is this bullshit with the toast? You make it sound like salvation or something. And Austin says, well, it is kind of like salvation, you know, because it's kind of like a new beginning, right? And he says, I love beginnings. I've always loved beginnings. And so this is also at dawn where they're talking about the sunrise and stuff like that. And it does take place over three days, and it is on the third day when all this is happening. And I think that the interpretation of the film, actually, or of, of the of the story, is the way that I like to interpret it. Um, other people can interpret it their own way. I think it's an ambiguous ending on purpose. But I think that actually Austin does kill Lee. And what ends up happening is Lee gets up, though. And this is the interesting thing: is Lee gets up. But I think that this is really them, um, in a sort of like afterlife purgatorial state. And they're trapped in this home. And this home isn't real at that point, but rather it's the you've given yourself over and you've lost yourself and now you're trapped in this state of the in-between, right? And uh, and I think that's kind of, kind of what's happening with the tale of this story from the beginning. And you could even say that the entire play, the entire story is a metaphor or some sort of allegory and that really Lee might just be a figment of Austin's imagination and that really everything is ultimately just this kind of metaphorical story about what happens because Austin um, is struggling with one, the relationship that he has with his father and um, worried that he would become that. And then some evidence to, to kind of support this is that Sam Shepard, he wrote this story in his mother's home in Pasadena while she was away in Alaska. And he said that Austin represents who he was in his first marriage. He ends up having a really long marriage to Jessica Lange for like 30 years or whatever. He was also in a long relationship with Patti Smith too. But um, his first marriage was when he was trying to do the right stuff. He was trying to be the writer, right? So Austin is him, how he felt about himself while he was in his first marriage, trying to hold things together and do the, do the industry thing, the institutional thing. And that Lee is the man he was afraid he would become. And that his dad in real life, Sam Shepard's dad, was an abusive alcoholic who was in the military. So this is so autobiographical, and it's really about exploring the shadows of who you are. And so I think there's these themes about salvation and redemption and losing yourself and trying to find out um, who you are and who you can be, um, even if you have been handed down these traumatic set of circumstances that sort of almost impinge upon you and in some ways maybe predestine you to be a certain way and, and how you kind of war against that and what happens if you lose yourself and you fall into that, that, that trap, so to speak, or that destiny. So I think those are kind of some of like the religious themes that are, are subtly circulating or circling the, the story. Yeah, strong uh, Ed versus superego idea that uh, our structure yeah. there which lends credence to the idea that it's about warring within oneself um at yeah. least from you know shepherd's point of view now you mentioned that a shepherd was influenced by beckett and i can and one thing i wanted to ask you about is you know obviously in beckett there's a um a, there's a silence 
uh, characters who never appear in the play have a strong role in, in you know, some famous Beckett plays, right? Um, the father in this play seems to have a pretty, he looms large over everything, but it's only yeah. mentioned a few times, but those few times seem incredibly important to, for explaining why um, the brothers have the relationship that they do, that it all really stems back to the father who never makes an appearance. Um, yeah. Can you say anything about that? Yeah, I think the father's in a, in a lot of ways the key to it all. Um, the father is the ultimate man that neither of them want to become, right? Um, Lee has just come back from the desert, spending some time with the father, and well, let let me say that not that neither of them want to become. Um, Austin doesn't want to become the father, right? He throws money at his father, he supports his father, he takes care of his father financially. Lee is the one who went out there and spent time with his father, but what he ends up finding out is that the time that he spent with him, he didn't learn everything about his father. There's a huge um, kind of secret that Austin has that he knows more about the father than Lee does. And so um, there's a there's some point of tension where Lee, Lee gets mad at Austin because Austin is embarrassed about the father, right? He's embarrassed about the situation that the father's in, that he's poor, he's destitute, he ends up losing all of his teeth. The father loses, has lost all of his teeth, and he ends up losing his dentures, his false teeth as well, right? And there's this kind of big scene, uh, this big monologue at the end of scene seven where Austin is telling this story to Lee about how he actually was out there and that the father lost all of his teeth and his fake teeth and they couldn't find the fake teeth. And this is kind of the turning point where Lee then is like, fuck it, burn it all down. And maybe part of the reason is, is that he thought he knew the father, but he didn't realize truly how freaking destitute the father really was. He didn't realize the truth of the situation. And he realized that the father never actually fully confided in Lee like Lee thought, right? Um, and so that there's more to the story, and that kind of I think is a breaking point for Lee. Um, and then more for Austin, like I said, psychoanalytic vibes going on there. A hundred percent, man. It's so it's so rich um, in the psychoanalytic themes. Definitely, definitely. What else were you thinking about that? Um, so yeah, that that makes a lot of sense with with how Lee would react to sort of having his identity formed in some way with this connection with the father, which then you know Austin sort of. Um, reveals is actually, you know, been sundered or broken, right? And that would yeah. sort of break apart within himself. What about from Austin's point of view? So do you think it's, it's, it's as simple as like uh, his relationship with his father is one of like mere duty or mere obligation. And so he doesn't have any sort of paternal um, connection to his father. Or just, is, what else is going on there? At least from Lee's perspective, that's, that's what makes Lee so mad is Lee thinks so at the at, when he first blows up at Austin in scene one he says uh, Austin offers Lee money and he says Lee says don't say that to me don't you ever say that to me you may be able to get away with that with the old man get him tanked up for a week and buy him off with your Hollywood blood money but not me I can get my own money my own way big money that's the line right and so there's so much there and the assumption from Lee's angle is that Austin is just throwing money at this guy to buy him off, right? And so from Lee's perspective, Austin doesn't have any emotional connection. It's just simply sterile. Then in scene six, when Saul comes back and they do decide, or Saul's trying to do this deal with Lee on this story, one of the, one of the um, kind of components of this deal is that they're going to create a, a little system where the father can be taken care of from the profits of this story. And um, Lee has told the producer that 
that the father is destitute and needs money. And that really pisses Austin off. And I think it's the embarrassment that Austin feels at that point. Because it's what he, Austin says, you know, what did he tell you about my father? You know? And then the producer, Saul, is kind of like, well, you know, he's destitute. He needs money. And Lee says, that's right, he does. And then Austin basically replies, no, no, but I gave him money. You know, I already took care of that. I gave him money. And then Lee responds, this is a different deal here. So again, it's Austin is kind of like, I'm taking care of dad. I've got this. And Lee's like, no, no, I'm going to take care of dad. And you can't take care of dad in your sterile way. I'm going to take care of dad. And I actually know dad and I love him. And I actually care about him. You don't give a shit about him. And then it turns out that actually Austin does know him. And Austin went out there. And then you find this in scene seven. Austin did actually go out there and he took him out to a Chinese dinner. And he met some, some of dad's friends. And they were drinking martinis out of plastic cups. And all of these kind of like real sweet, cute, inside intimate things that austin did with dad lee then is like oh fuck i guess i had it all wrong to begin with maybe there is something more to the story and then it turns out that not only is there more to the story but i'm left out from that angle and so yeah, i think that's yeah go ahead yeah i guess I, I didn't really think about it this way but you know what the the whole the play is set up where austin is supposed to be in the beginning the moral exemplar right and lee's the degenerate but from lee's perspective he thinks of himself, at least in terms of his relationship with their father, as being the moral exemplar. He 100%. acts out of he acts out of love for the father, whereas uh, Austin has disdain for the father, and that's sort of you know disloyal, or um, in some sense, that's a kind of degeneracy that Lee notices and and thinks of himself as being better than. In a way, everything Lee does is morally superior. It's morally superior to living in the suburbs. It's morally superior to driving back and forth on the freeway. It's morally superior to the inauthenticity of the city where like it's everything from the opening bit. Uh, Lee's walking around saying, do you have coffee? And then he's like, is it real coffee from the bean? Mom later on says, do you want to take some plastic plates when Lee's gathering his stuff up? No, it's not authentic. What I need is something authentic. It's too easy to get out of touch out there in the desert. So there's these themes about inauthenticity, about the plastic nature of Hollywood, about the plastic world of the suburbs um, that, that Lee is above because he's the man of nature. He's the man of the desert. He's the man of the real. So he's always superior about everything, even when he's steals people's televisions austin is like he's like you're giving me shit you go around and steal people's televisions and what is lee's response they don't need their televisions i'm doing them a service (laughs) right he's always justified he's always in the right and this is one of the difficult things for me austin the actor was i had to i had to not judge him i had to not judge any of his actions right like uh, he's a very there's a lot of characteristics that he has that are very similar to um my mother's ex-boyfriend who was an abusive alcoholic and and it hit home pretty close to home a few times early on in the rehearsals i mean even through midway through a few weeks out from the show and this is something that the director and i talked a lot about was just i had to get over any judgment about this character at all and i had to see that he was in the right a hundred percent from his angle and because he's not really a reflective person he doesn't have those moments where he would then question, well, maybe I'm not. No, he's 100% in the right. The world of the suburbs disgusts him. The world of Hollywood is superficial and shallow and plastic. And then that's another reason why the break for him at the end is so profound because he then starts to buy into it. Once the once he, he gets the scent of the money, 
in this story with this producer that he can that he can kind of like uh, hustle. And he starts to kind of go down that road. Then he starts to see himself falling into the traps of inauthenticity in the plastic world and the world of Hollywood blood money that his brother was caught up in that he disdains so much. And then that's part of the reason that he then is like, fuck it, I, I really have to get out of here. So then by the end, that's why he's like, I got to I gotta go. I can't be caught up in this shit because all this town does is drive a man insane, you know? And so, um, but from his perspective, he's always the moral, the moral superior. The man just needed some coke and hookers like give That's, them that and give them a uh no i know just get him a girl <laughs> i did want to mention also you know i thought one of the more um beautiful moments and you know obviously there's not really any redemption or much redemption happening in the story right but lee when he realizes he can't do the screenwriting right he's obviously as you said he's unreflective right he um, has certain sort of uh, conceptual priors about what's valuable and authenticity is the number one thing, right? And so he's never, ever going to admit that he's wrong about anything, right? That's mm. the sense in which he lacks reflection. Um, but he does have some values, right? He's not just like purely acting on animalistic instinct as, as far as, you know, um, what's valuable and what matters in life. Um, he has that moment when he realizes he can't do the the screenplay he needs someone else to write it for him and to help him and he it seems to me at least authentically honestly is vulnerable for a moment and says yeah. i need you to austin yeah like i need you you have something i don't have you have a skill a talent it's worthwhile it's valuable it's necessary and if we work together we can do a good job and if we don't i can't do this and like that was a moment yeah. where I felt like that's the level of vulnerability and honesty that even Austin never really portrayed. And he's supposed to be, you know, the more kind mm. of traditionally, um, you know, reflective and, uh, you know, morally superior character from a sort of dominant cultural point of view. Did you feel the same way about that that scene? Yeah, that's huge. That's so. That's in scene seven, and that's right before the what we call the teeth monologue, the where Austin starts explaining what happened. Uh, with the father and stuff like that. And this is after Austin has kind of like abandoned everything and he's all drunk now. He's like, fuck it. And um, and Lee is trying and he's trying his damnedest, but he can't even fucking type a sentence on the typewriter. And then the typewriter falls apart and he can't get the ribbon together. And then it starts, you know, unwinding. And, and he realizes that this world is not his world. And at the same time, he realizes that it is his brother's world. And so in the midst of all of this strife and this tension and this conflict, there is also a brotherly love and a, a sense in which there's a brotherly respect. Um, it's buried and it's hidden and Lee's not good at expressing any sort of connection. But in that one moment, yeah, I do think, I do think that, um, that he does genuinely, authentically reach out and say, I need you. And we really tried to lean into that again in the rehearsal, so I'm glad you picked up on that because that's that's what it was. It was the I I need I need you I need you now you know sort of thing. Um, yeah yeah yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that really reinforces the the notion that you know you can only truly hate someone you love. Um, hmm. At least there's a special kind of you know like resentment or hate that happens for those who at some point had a loving relationship, right? Because you can only really um, f care that much you hate requires a lot of care 
right? Mm. Um, and so that has to pre-exist the hate in some way. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously family relationships and, and brothers like this uh, with the complicated relationship they have with their father would be um, sort of, that would be the material you would need to develop mm. that kind of um, love and hate combination. Mm. Well, speaking yeah. of that, I got a large hint, and I'm sure this is, you know, this is very abstract in general, but there's a lot of mimetic rivalry happening here. And you had to notice that given your, mm-hmm. um, you know, conceptual and philosophical history and background. So I know you tried to repress a lot of that, but upon reflection, what do you think about the whole mimetic rivalry happening between the brothers here? So what, what parts in particular are you thinking about? I, I'm just thinking really generally. Um, there's obviously a sense of back and forth where there's like a, a struggle for recognition, like a Hegelian sense of struggle of recognition, right? Um, mm. Between brothers, um, where coming to new knowledge about how the br- one brother sees the other causes them to formulate some new conception about um, about what they have to do next and what matters to them. Um, yeah, it and, is interesting. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, yeah. M- m- mimetic rivalry is just one way that that dynamic plays out, right? It's a particular of that, of that species. Yeah, and then do you think we could even go so far as to say then that that Lee kind of becomes the sacrifice at the end? That there's something, I mean, something has to die, right? If we're going to go Girardian. Um, but it's a scapegoat usually. So there's, there's is there a scapegoat in the show? Yeah, so in Girard, the scapegoat, there's build there's buildup of tension from the medical library, right? The more that this, the... Um, the rivalry builds in a circuit, right? It gains an intensity each time. That's that's Gerard's idea, right? And yeah. uh, it sort of, it becomes more pervasive throughout the society as it builds. And then the scapegoat sort of uh, cuts off or chokes off that tension by placing it all onto one person. And then everyone can kind of relax for a minute and, you know, exhale before it builds hmm. up again. And then that becomes the cycle um, of, of violence in society. Um so yeah, I mean, would that would that sort of schema apply here? It does seem like obviously there's that sense of tension building as the mm. violence becomes more frequent and more intense each time, right? Uh, and them being stuck together in a room basically it provides the provides the location for um, the setting for that to occur, and so that that tension builds up and builds up, um, and it does seem to have a mimetic rivalry, right? Both Lee's probably secretly wanting to be as successful um, and confident as uh, Austin is. And Austin, obviously, very explicitly, his dream, the thing he wants most in life, Lee achieves without even really trying. So that's a, mm. an obvious uh, object of um, mimesis there. Mm. And then, yeah, it, it ends with um, Austin more or less killing Lee in one of these fits where he loses himself, as you said earlier, right? The, mm. Usually their bouts of violence are quick and then they're over fast um, and they move on. But this time Austin holds out too long and seems to mm. accidentally accidentally kill Lee. But then we don't see what happens after that. So we don't see if the exhale happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's because I think that, that it's a pessimistic ending, like for me. I, I don't think there is any sort of resolution. I think basically what Shepard is saying is that uh, they're trapped, you know? Um, they're trapped in their fates, so to speak. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of interesting, huh? Yeah, I don't know. I, I hadn't thought about that aspect. The Hegelian aspect rang 
super strong in my head when I was first exploring this. I was like, holy shit. I was like, that that definitely. Um, the mimetic rivalry, definitely, if we're just going to look at the, you know, I want what I want, or I want what you, I want what I want because uh, I want what you want sort of thing, um, which creates the the immediate clashes. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how far to take that... Um, that kind of conceptual apparatus throughout the whole story. I think I'd have to think about that one more. But it's definitely, I mean, there's definitely echoes of it, you know? Yeah, just at the very least, like, and this is, I think, just true in general, that, uh, you know, we form our desires um, and our goals and our ends, not just by sitting on a chair and, you know, drinking some tea and thinking really hard about things that matter in general, (laughs) but through interaction with people. And seeing what they desire and want, there's nothing inherently bad about that, right? I I, I don't subscribe to the Girardian thesis, uh, the super cynical, pessimistic version of it, right? But I think there's certainly some sense in which, when it goes bad, it can kind of be like that, right? Uh, when mm. it's, and you live in an unhealthy society um, and in unhealthy dynamics, uh, social dynamics, it can look more like Girard's version than than a healthy version would look like, right? So yeah, I mean, mm. them going back and forth and Lee adopting basically stealing in a sense austin's ends from austin's point of view at least it's stealing it right and then austin sort of adopting lee's ends um by deciding Mm -hmm. that he's going to be a criminal and that's that maybe that is a more authentic way of life and i need to at least try it and see if that happens and hey fucking toast is awesome (laughs) i'm glad i have all these fucking toasters (laughs) that does seem to to be occurring there um but Mm -hmm. yeah the fact that it's so ambiguous in the end is uh lee is open what to think about that and whether or not it's is the is the lesson to be learned that Austin has to survive and has to choke off that sense because it's the only way to live in the current world. There's like a no country for old men kind of thing where the old world's dying and the new world's coming in. And even if the new world can't face the fact that it's going to choke off and kill the old world, it's going to have to do it accidentally or something like mm. that. I don't know. There's Obviously, there's layers of themes, right? It's, it's about um, the West becoming more or the cosmopolitan or whatever and coming into the modern age and about you know it's about those big issues as much as it's about the inner dynamics of the end and the superego in sam shepherd himself as particular as that is right yeah and, and and another way it could be understood and this is where i think the the role of the feminine comes in which we had teased kind of in a previous episode yeah you did mention um, that yeah what you have is you have the mother's house and it's a domestic space mm. right um, and it's a space that is well manicured and it's all put together and she has all of her antiques and this is something that they talk about, right? And she likes everything clean and, you know, Lee is like, are you making sure you're watering the plants? And she doesn't like even a single tea leaf in the sink. Like there's everything that's clean here, right? And then um, you have the plants all around the house that I think represent life and bounty and um, Austin's taking care of them. And what you have in the desert is what? You don't really have plants. You just have fucking, the only thing you have are cacti, Right. Um, so Lee then is the sort of like invasion. I think the personification of the desert coming into a world that is trying to suppress, um, the desert, right? So like Southern California is desert. It's suburbs and cities built on desert and then it runs into the ocean, right? And so I think what Lee is, is kind of like he comes in from the East and moves westward and he brings the desert with him. And what ends up happening 
is um, as it gets hotter and hotter and uh, Lee and Austin aren't taking care of the plants, the plants end up, uh, plants end up dying in the house. They destroy the domestic sphere. They don't take care of um, the feminine as represented by bounty and life and procreation and things like that. And what ends up happening is that the desert kind of takes over and it becomes a wasteland inside the house. So I think that that is kind of um, maybe what Austin is doing is that he's kind of succumbing, if you will, to um, the pressures of the desert, the pressures of the nothing, the pressures of uh, of death that kind of come in and and squash um, the bounty or or the life or the plenitude, the vitality that is represented by the feminine in this story. That's really interesting. I don't think I I saw that at all, but it really makes a lot of illuminates things a lot more thinking about it afterwards because the the mother's role is so minimal and almost accidental. Like she mm-hmm. she even walks in on the scene and is just kind of like doesn't do anything <laughs> like you're almost saying like do something like mom or whatever but she's so shocked um that yeah. she can't really do anything so you, you it's easy to just ignore it and to pretend that it doesn't play a role but that makes that's really interesting i'll have to think more about that yeah and that's where the absurdity comes in too right is that her that whole scene scene nine is intentionally absurd um in the in the script it's even more absurd it says that she just stands there numbly right and one of the things that we did is we added a little bit more um, humanity, uh, if you will, to the story, a little bit more realism to the story than, um, I guess, previous productions. Um, you know, it, obviously every production is a different interpretation of, of the script, right? Um, but yeah, she she doesn't intervene. She doesn't stop the fight. She doesn't clean up. She, you know, we talked a lot about this. Like, it was very interesting for Joe, the actor, um, when she was trying to figure out, like, okay, like... Is, does she have dementia? Does she have schizophrenia? Is she just shocked because she sees Lee and Lee reminds her of her husband, you know, her ex-husband, and it's the trauma of the abuse? Like, what is it? Why is she kind of in this weirdly catatonic state, you know, when her house has been fucking destroyed and then her sons are in this, like, like fight to the death? Like, what is that, right? And it could be a few things. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it's definitely something that is, I think, intentionally pitched at the level of the absurd um and then uh but then one of the other things i was going to say like regarded to the feminine is it also austin is like screw it i'm going to leave my wife and my family i'm done i got kids and a wife and i'm going to leave all of them so again there's like this this cavalier disrespect that he has which is also i think part of um kind of him losing himself but again it's it's the refusal of procreation the refusal of building something the refusal of of vitality we might say um in exchange for the desert that kind of comes in and kills so yeah yeah i get a strong sense of like um austin kind of represents the the sort of domineering um spirit of modernity which is you know kind of take nature and shape it as a means to whatever uh, human ends are available are um, chosen and then lee represents the sort of supposedly authentic like live off the land uh, never actually change your shows, your sort of social uh, dynamics. Um, and that's a more authentic way to live because that's just traditional or whatever, right? But then mm. both of those are extremely destructive from the point of view of the feminine where something like, um, you know, the, the the sort of dominant end of care or whatever um, mm. sees both of those as being uh, violent and destructive in different ways. Probably mm. Austin's more so, right? Um mm. Yeah, but yeah, but that's that's really interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you have any other final conceptual questions or comments 
So we can wrap this madness up. Uh, not that I can think of. That I covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those stories that that the more you delve into it, the richer it gets, the more interesting it is. There's layers and layers and layers. I mean, you could do a psychoanalytic reading. You could do the reading that Troy was just mentioning about an examination of modernity. And then maybe Lee, you know, this is written in the late 70s. Uh, it's it's written finally in 80 and it's nominated for a Pulitzer in 83. So, you know, this is like at the time of the postmodern shift. So is there something about the desire in the postmodern ethos to critique modernity, but then is itself just a flimsy kind of hollow simulacra, right? Like, is that kind of what's going on here? And then with the Beckett-inspired absurdism, um, does it kind of lean more into, I mean, is this a piece of postmodern revisionist Western fiction? Is that what this story is? And I think it is, you know? Um, yeah, and, 83, right? So like, I'm trying to think of the yeah. history of, of revisionist Westerns. Um, you don't have Unforgiven yet because that's 92, right? Right. So like, other than like spaghetti westerns, when when it's supposed to be like the the origin of the revisionist western, kind of blanking. Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, what's the the Dustin Hoffman film? Uh, when he, oh fuck, like Little Big Horse or whatever the fuck it's called. Um, God, I can't remember the name of it right now. But oh, I don't know. I don't know when that is. That's that is that eighties or is that seventies? Um, yeah, around this time, it's kind of. I think you're seeing. You're seeing some of it, but this is definitely, this is definitely at the forefront. And the know? first wave, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot there. And for people that are interested, if this story sounds appealing to you at all, it's part of a trilogy or it's actually, would you call it a quadrilogy? Um, uh, of, of, a, of a series of plays. Um, they're not, you know, surrounding the same characters. But they're thematically exploring similar themes. In the 70s, Shepard did a lot of avant-garde art stuff and theater stuff in New York. And then he started to really explore the family in the late 70s and then into the 80s. And so this is kind of when he really finds his footing. This is... It's this, Fool for Love, Unburied Child. He wins the Pulitzer for Unburied Child. Fool for Love, uh, this. These are the, fil- the the stories, I mean the plays, that really garner him attention as a playwright. And it's when he starts to explore his own sort of familial trauma. And all of the, the plays are really sort of um, autobiographical. And they're, um, I think they're super rich with their, with their themes. It's the sort of thing where like, I'm, I'm obsessed now, you know, I'm reading interviews with him and, you know, like one of the things he talks about, like part of the reason that he wrote this play is that he was examining at this time. And I found it so timely. He's examining what he saw as the collapse of American culture, um, (laughs) which was so interesting because is this not some of the similar sentiments that you see in like the quote post Trump, uh, post, post Obama, let's say age of the United States of America. Like it feels so potent and timely. When I read it, um, you know, I thought so much of the themes that were being explored are just simply reiterated now, that we're dealing with now. So much of the resentments are the same pent up resentments that people are experiencing now. And so, um, so much of that, I feel like Sam Shepard really just, he had his finger on the pulse. He had a beat on it, you know, even, even back then. And it just shows you that it's something that um, is part of the growing pains of our country that we've been dealing with for decades. This isn't just something new that just came after Obama. This isn't something that just came with Trump. This isn't just something that came post-Bush, post-9-11, whatever. This is built into the very fabric of decades and decades and decades of um, 
part of the American cultural ethos. And I think that's why the play for me initially rang so true to me and then also why it had such resonance and one kind of like incited me to want to explore it more. Yeah, I mean, the evidence of that's just the fact that other than like the typewriter being used, um, it's timeless. Like it doesn't seem like it's from the 80s at all. I I had no idea that was the case until you mentioned it. Yeah, well, even hipsters today type on typewriters, you know? So, you know, Tom Hanks likes to write on a typewriter. There are people who still write on a typewriter. So it could have been set today, you know? It's just there's no cell phones. But, I mean, yeah, I I think it's meant to be suspended in that timeless space. That's one of the surrealist elements of this story, you know? Hmm. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, sweet. Um, If you guys got enticed at all and you are interested in exploring this further, definitely read Sam Shepard's stories, read his plays, read about Shepard. He's a really interesting figure. Um, Like I said, amazing writer. And if you want to check out our version, you can. Go to truewestsydney.com and you can still check that out. It's a high-quality live stream. It's pretty damn good. It's not the same as being there in person, but it's about as good as you can get. And in this day and age when there's no live theater for a lot of people, fuck, man, it's still enjoyable. So... I'll put a link down in the show notes, but yeah, truewestsydney.com. All right, sweet. So now we'll move on to our final segment for the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a potentially uh, meaningless universe. So, Troy, what is giving you the feels this week? So not this week. It's been a, it's been a few weeks, but I saved it. Um, so I've mentioned before in the podcast that, uh, and to you that when the semester is over, I always tend to spend some time and play a video game to sort of decompress and have yeah. that moment of exile, uh, exile that we were talking about earlier. Um, so over the break, uh, this year, over the last winter break, I played a game called outer wilds. Have you heard of it? It's no. not a, it's not a super popular game from what I can tell at least. It's um, it's getting it's called Outer Wilds, um, not to be confused with Outer Worlds, which is a different game. And it was very confusing trying to find out which of those I needed to get based upon things that I had heard. Um, but Outer Wilds, it's a game that came out I think um, like a year and a half ago. It actually has a really interesting development history. It's a it's an indie game. Um, a small team made it, um, and uh, I think the team actually, the the company's called Annapurna Interactive. But I, I think oh, yeah. that it originated with a couple of or a team of USC grad students. Um, so it's got an okay. interesting history. And I watched some interviews with with some of them and they all look like they're 12. So they can't be too <laughs> far. Uh, they're either still are at USC or not too far after graduating. Um, but it's gotten pretty rave reviews. That's how I heard about it. It was, you know, a lot of people had named it as something like you know, the, the best indie game ever or something like that. Or like indie adventure game, at least. And the basic setup is you wake up as this weird multi-eyed alien creature on your home planet, which is fairly similar to Earth. Um, And your species loves nothing more than to travel around their solar system. They're not very advanced technologically, technologically, except for the fact that they've built spaceships. And they build them out of like... (laughs) wood and basic materials so it's extremely dangerous and flammable and they seem to be extremely reckless and so they often die but that seems to be totally okay with them dying and at the hands of uh you know 
the void of space is, I guess, something like dying in battle for the ancient Greeks. Like, no better way to die, right? And (laughs) you wake up and it's on your first day when you're going to launch into space for the first time. And you do so and you find that your son, Supernova, is 22 minutes into the game and kills you. And then you wake up and you do it again. And you have to spend the entire game finding out why your son is supernovaing and then stop it. And so you continually go through loops where only you and apparently one other character realize you're in this temporal loop where you keep living the same 22 minutes over and over again. And as you do this loop dozens and dozens of times, you start to like fully understand or fully be able to predict how every planet in your solar system is going to react at any moment because it's the same you know, determined loop. So you can kind of almost like it becomes home for you, right? As you learn the controls and the, and the controls in the spaceship are, are fairly difficult um, to master at first, at least for me. Um, you end up becoming kind of mastered at it and you end up being able to like find your spaceship and land on a different planet and in a matter of like 30 seconds and do so very efficiently. And it's, it's pretty fun to master that whole thing because um, it's complicated mm. at first. And it has this whole like cartoony um atmosphere to it that is um that makes it very fun despite the fact that there's this kind of semi-serious thing going on where you know your whole solar system is going up in flames every 22 minutes um and it has this whole long backstory that you have to find out about where you go to different planets in your solar system and figure out how this ancient species um, used to be here and something they did seems to have caused um this problem and then you have to try to resolve it using like um, time dilation and black holes and all sorts of different, you know, kind of you know, pseudoscientific, uh, you know, quantum theory type stuff that you often see in movies and TV. But I can excuse that because everybody does that shit nowadays. Um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful little game. And I've never understood and never had any um, sort of connection to people, to watching people play video games on YouTube. What do they call those? Like Let's Plays? That's what it's called, right? Where you watch someone else play a video game. But the one time I could understand it was this game. Because seeing people come to realizations about what's happening in their solar system as they discover Mm. new things throughout this game, you get this sense of incredible wonder, which fits perfectly with the way that the species that you're a member of work. They just All they care about is flying in space and discovering things. And so there's this real childlike wonder element to it that you end up participating in as you sort of begin to understand the history of this solar system, the, the old species that's died out um, and all this stuff and your opportunity to uh, to save everybody. Um, or maybe there's an ambiguous ending, which I won't talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a wonderful little game. And I really think that if any game was going to convert people who who don't really play video games or who don't like you know, these big triple A games where it's like Assassin's Creed and you just go around and you kill 17,000 people and somehow you're the good guy, right? Um, if you can't get into those kind of, or games where it's just, you know, you, all you do is shoot people and that's the whole point of the game, right? This is a totally different experience than that. It's all about adventure and discovery and wonder um, and all these elements that the major games that are out there that make a lot of money that most people spend their time playing don't really trade much on those elements and the most of the games how'd you hear about them i I don't remember how probably just somebody that i follow on twitter or something um 
or on YouTube maybe mentioned it. And so I put it on a list and um, I think just randomly decided to play it since I keep hearing such great things about it. Mm. But it really provides a unique, a unique space, I think, in the in the video game industry, given that even games like Last of Us, which we've talked about before, which do challenge mm-hmm. a lot of those uh, approaches to violence and, and how major games um, uh, play out and maybe even affect us psychologically, do so by like going deeper down the hole <laughs> and making you feel bad. That's one way of doing it, right? And that's, you know, I think Last of Us 2 was a fantastic game. Um, I can't imagine ever playing Last of Us 2 again, at least not for a long time, given its nature. I can see myself playing Outer Wilds every couple of years, given um, that those those senses, the, the values that it incorporates of, of wonder and discovery um, are things that are multiply... Um, replayable right like you can you can multiply instantiate those things in a way that um maybe sorrow and um and and the more negative balances they're harder to to do continually right Hmm. and it also makes for some really badass uh speed runs there's some there's one guy who beats the whole game in like 10 minutes and it's pretty amazing i know all speed runs are magnificent like that but it's it's especially the case for this game sorry you were gonna say something (laughs) No, no. So what's what's the let's play thing? I don't really know what that is. I think that's the name for. It. I'm not really sure. It's like where you you watch someone on Twitch play a game, and then they just they're giving running commentary oh, yeah. as they play it, and so you just watch someone else play a game. I've been oh gotcha. I'm bewildered that anybody could find that amusing. Not that I'm judging it. I just don't understand it. It's not how I'm wired. I guess. I mean, aren't some of the biggest YouTube channels like? Isn't that what they do? Oh, that's like their living, their job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I mean, some of the biggest, like, 50 million fucking subs. Yeah, I'm pretty uh, sure there are people who are close to millionaires from doing that. Yeah, yeah what's that What's that dude's name? I can see his face. Fuck, the guy that got in trouble for, like, wearing, like, a Nazi outfit or something like that. Oh, PewDiePie? Yeah, that guy, PewDiePie. Isn't that, isn't that what he did? Isn't that how he got famous? I think so. I've never seen him other than people talking about meta-commentary about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man i uh i haven't played a video game since i gave myself that little week's vacation where i played all the games that i talked about where i played like uncharted and shit like that mm. and uh, I, I was having an itch after i finished the show because i was like fuck it i was like i just want to take a week and just play some fucking video games <laughs> oh i was having a little bit of the urge but uh oh yeah. I, I think you'd love I, this dude especially as a break from yeah. Um, the more traditional, you know, the, the bigger um, blockbuster games that that like regular like normies like us have played before, right? Yes. Who aren't super into like every new indie game that's totally breaking the mold. This is like a gateway version of that, I think. I, just, I can't imagine like... anybody not enjoying this game is the thing, I guess I would say. I, I mean, I know I know that this is hard because I'm putting you on the spot, but I know how good you are with lists. Do you have like a top five video games that you would recommend people play? I, mean, I have like a top five favorite, but that's very different than that's more about how they affected me at that time in my life than it is about ones that uh, I think people should play. I mean, I guess like give the us best a top five ones, favorite then. No, yeah. The best ones, like the most, I think, accomplished ones would probably be like The Last of Us 1 and 2. Um, Witcher 3, I think, is probably the best RPG I've ever played. Um, what else would be on that list? 
Mass Effect 2, I think is on there. See, I've only played maybe like two dozen games because <laughs> I play the long ass games. Yeah. So there's not going to be a super extensive list. Um, Did you ever play Bioshock? Yeah, I do like the Bioshock games. Um, I mean, I've never, I've never played them, but everyone says that I'd love them. Yeah, because like the first one, um, the main villain is basically like an Ayn Randian character. And there's a, a pretty mm. robust like uh, lore that develops around objectivism um, in Bioshock. Mm. And it's really fun. Like it's really well made and it's funny and it's clever. And uh, I don't even like mm. shooters like at all. Um, but that, that game's you know, kind of a shooter and it, it's so involved in other areas that you don't even notice the fact that it's kind of redundant in, in, in being a shooter. Mm-hmm. There were some problems, I think, with, I don't remember which one it is, but there's one of them that's set in, set in like a, a early 20th century, um, like, a fic- like historical fiction type thing where there's a city in the clouds. And that, that game has some controversy politically with some things, but I won't mention that. But the, mm. I think, yeah. Did, did you ever play Alan Wake? No, what is that? Is that what it's called? Alan Wake? It's supposed to be like, uh, hold on, let me see. I'm just giving a quick, yeah, Alan Wake. So it's supposed to be a very sort of like um, Lynchian, Lynchian hmm. game. Um, it's basically, it's like a mystery kind of game. And uh, yeah, it's got like plot twists and cliffhangers. And it's got like this eerie, weird, weird kind of vibe to it in this like small town sort of thing. So... Did you it's play supposed it? to be really good though. No, but I just know people talk about it all the time. So, and people that are fans of like Twin Peaks are always like, "Oh yeah, it's like Twin Peaks." Oh, I love Twin Peaks, so maybe I will have to check that out. Yeah, it's from 2010, so it's a little older, but it's got a very sort of Twin Peaks vibe. So, but I remember it was like kind of like a hot, maybe more underground indie game that people were talking about, but I never played it, and I was always curious. It seemed like the kind of game that you would have played and that you would have dug, so I thought you might have known of it. Yeah, I probably wasn't playing games at that point, like 2010. That's like right after college, during grad school. I think I was overseas. I don't yes, think I, I didn't start playing games again until, I don't know, like maybe five, six years ago. And I had to kind of catch up mm. by playing all those games that came out between like 2006 and 2015. There were like all these, you know... Um, blockbuster games that changed the way that video games are played like last of us and many yeah. others and the mass effect trilogy yeah and exactly like that. and, and uncharted all that shit, shit. Like that. <laughs> yeah 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 same i mean well I, I i didn't even binge that much of it just a little bit of it on my little break but yeah so, yeah, so okay I'd be, I'd be curious if anybody who's listening out there has played outer wilds what your experiences are because i have this really deep fondness and affection for the game, I think it's beautiful. I think it was built on a shoestring budget, and yet it's so amazing, and that lends this kind of charm um, to it. And I really hope that it ends up going down as, as kind of a classic, as I, I think it will be, um, given that it seems like everybody who's played it just adores it. it it's not just a game mm. that you like, it's a game that you love. Um, so uh, I'm hoping that's the case. And if anybody out there has, has played it, I'd be curious what your reactions were to it, if they're same or different than mine, and, and what you think about it. So hit me up, at me. Yeah, at him on Twitter, Axe Wielder of Death, or you can hit us up on Twitter at owls underscore at underscore Don. We're going to go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Uh, Yeah, thank you guys for tuning in. We love you.
Reach out to us with questions. Email us. I was at donpodcast at gmail.com. We got our Patreon. We got our merch. We got a website. You can comment. You can email. You can fight with us about video games. You can <laughs> talk to us about theater. Uh, you can tell us your embarrassing audition stories. Oh, yeah. Let's um, make a theme of that. <laughs> Whatever you got, come come and give it to us. We love you. Thank you so much. I think that's pretty much it, right, Troy? Unless there's anything else you've got to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidanya, Mirakramski. Yeah.